Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Dean Madigan, owner and executive creative director of Campaign Edge, a creative advertising agency with offices virtually everywhere, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Darwin. She's also an author, a a social commentator, and regularly appears on ABC's Gruen, Channel 7, Sunrise, and many others. Welcome, Dee. Good. um, I was going to say good morning or good afternoon. depends on what time people are listening to this. (laughs) Good good day. Good good night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, uh, thanks for making the time to to sit down and have a chat. You've you've, uh, created quite an interesting position in the marketplace with uh, Campaign Edge, haven't you? Yeah, look, and that was kind of deliberate. When I started sort of being in this space, I guess, I realised that there was an absolute dearth of professional organisations in the progressive space. There was a lot of sort of party hats who thought they knew what they were doing but didn't. And um, and I just I just thought, you know what, there is a complete space in this industry for... Um, or a professional organisation, and um, and it turns out I was right. So <laughs> luckily, hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this has come on a career that you'd already established uh, quite successfully as a creative working on a lot of, you know, commercial brands as well, isn't it? Yeah, so that's kind of how it, I almost had two, I had a career going and then I had a sort of a passion going and they were sort of existing side by side. So I was in, you know, mainstream ad agencies working on big brand campaigns, which is, you know, when you're a junior, it's just a lot of fun. It really is. But I, I was I was getting to the point where I was more increasingly uncomfortable about the work I was doing, not because I feel that advertising is inherently bad. I just kind of felt there was something more I wanted to be doing. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of political commentary um, and I was writing articles on politics and that was kind of what I was passionate about and, and I was feeling less passionate, I guess, about advertising. I just thought if I sat in another meeting where they sort of spend an hour talking about the size of a logo, I would possibly go and walk out. So I knew, knew I was at a bit of a crossroads. And so when I got the opportunity to do an election campaign, having done lots of government marketing campaigns and social change sort of campaigns, I did it and it was the first time in my life where you just feel you are doing exactly, exactly what you should be doing and it was it was an incredible feeling. Well, that comes from a sense of social conscience, doesn't it? Because, uh, and I know I've read where you've said a few times that, you know, social conscience was something that was uh, sort of given to you uh, in your family as you're growing up. Is this an extension of that belief in doing good? Partly, although I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't make myself out to be too altruistic. Yes, I grew up in a family um, that we were very, you know, it was a very Catholic family um, and social justice was a part of that. Um, my father or my parents were very interested in politics. They were from Ireland um, and they're living in Australia, but they, you know, they, my father was a massive Bob Hawke fan, a massive Paul Keating fan. So, so that was all 
I don't know, it was just part of my upbringing. We weren't allowed TV, for example, which is weird that I live, you know, that I work primarily in TV. We didn't own a TV until we won one when I was seven at the parish fete. And even when we won one, it was only turned on for the ABC News and um, an occasion if there was a mini series, basically, you know, about Ireland or something. That was it. Um, Power so, Without Glory. I remember my father watching every episode of Power Without Glory on the ABC. Yes, yes. And um, there was also, also though, Against the Wind, which was an Australian mini oh, yes. John English for my father. I don't know, my parents quite like that. And also Roots. There was a, 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 about a black rights in, you know, black slaves in America. And that was kind of, I just remember every year that those miniseries would come on and we were allowed to watch TV. So that was, um. so basically dinner time was all discussions of politics. And in my HSC, and we went to a very posh, girls' school, uh, you know, convent girls' school in Turak, which is, you know, why I'm such a goddamn fucking lady. Um, <laughs> you know, there was 97 of us in HSC and I think two of us voted Labor. So so uh, that was always part of it. But there's another side to me as well that why I like campaigns and that's less altruistic is that I'm basically a brawler with breasts. Like I love the fight and the heat of a campaign and the speed at which you have to work. So there's a part of it that just suits my personality so people always say why don't you go into politics it's like because they don't want to be nice to people all the time whereas in a campaign it's really it is it is the pointy end and it's like just I can't describe it but for me it's like heroin well I assume it's like heroin having never actually tried heroin right okay so uh that's quite interesting that you bring that up because I can imagine you know some of those consumer packaged goods campaigns that you worked on in your career you would have found painfully slow I mean people would literally sit around in meeting after meeting contemplating every you know minutiae of the uh of the communication whereas I can imagine uh, election campaigns are as you say fast and furious they are and even the non-election stuff, like the union stuff they do, what is so lovely about working for them is none of them have marketing degrees. So you don't get someone who's been at uni for three years and just thinks that this is the way you do something. They come to me and they say, you know, this. what do you think we should do? And it is such a lovely, respectful way to work. And you know what? You get better work out of it because you don't get people wrecking it. Having said that, I've worked on some great brands and I was really lucky to work with some great clients. But sometimes they just kind of were what they were so say Jane J Carefree was like no she has to be on a beach I was like oh god really so what I would do was get a globe spin it choose the bloody nicest beach that I could find and write the ad set on that beach and make sure I went to that shoot it's like if I'm not going to get a great ad out of this I'm going to get a great trip out of this well that's not a bad way of writing your uh, next holiday is it it was very, and the clients were always in furious agreement with me because, of course, they got to come on the shoot as well. Well, there's some one thing about political advertising that you rarely see in brand advertising, and that is a willingness to attack and to attack the opposition. You know, it's very rare that you see, you know, even the most mild comparative campaigns anymore. But in politics, there is absolutely an opening to attack the opposition, isn't there? There is, but I, I look. I think there is in advertising. Challenger brands have always done it, but you have to do it with a bit of cleverness and tongue in cheek. And, and my argument with political advertising, because I always get people who go, "Oh, I hate negative ads. Why do you do them?" It's like, well, because they work, and there's a whole lot of psychological reasons why. Mostly, we're hardwired to notice negative information. 
it's a survival instinct. If you go on your new site in the morning, you click on the bad stuff first. But we also know that because people hate negative ads, they tune them out really quickly if they can kind of see it coming. So I never, what you'll never see from me is a negative ad in yellow and black with the booming voice sort of, you know, that kind of crap. That's the sort of stuff that political advertising was doing. And when I sort of started, I'd say to people, I will not do those ads. I won't do kitchen sink ads where you, you know, put everything in. So I'll do attack ads, but I try to make them clever or funny because if basically if you... But going back to the people hate negative ads, you work out what their barriers are and then you kind of got to slip under them. And just like with normal advertising, is they're not obliged to watch your ad. So you actually have to work hard. You have to put an idea into it. You have to be entertaining. So in a lot of ways, the good old advertising rules apply to political advertising just as much or even more so. And this is what I sort of had to explain to a lot of people in politics who just wanted to do the old black and white. It's like... There's no point. You can say everything you want in an ad, but if people haven't paid attention, you've totally wasted your money. You have to be cleverer than that. But isn't some of the justification the idea that governments lose elections and oppositions don't win them? 100%. Swinging voters are more likely to vote against things than for things, and and that's why most campaigns will be 70% neg. And I've had some political leaders who I won't mention They'll go to me and go, D, I want this to be a 100% positive campaign. I look them straight in the eye and go, yeah, absolutely. And in my brain I'm going, mate, not a freaking chance. <laughs> <laughs> like the positive sets up kind of the agenda, if you like. But the problem is with political ads is most parties have broadly the same aims and it's very hard to differentiate, you know, in a political ad and they just tend to look a little bit wallpapery. And the problem with the, the positive one, sorry, is that everyone you know, the people in it all decide to have an input into how it, you know, should look and feel and that, whereas with NEGS you can kind of just go away and do your own thing and as long as it researches well, it's fine to go. So, um, so yeah, we, we probably still do like 80% NEGS or 20% POS. Isn't one of the other advantages of incumbents in that they have access to government advertising and we've seen it on both sides of politics where leading up to an election, they'll suddenly do a lot of advertising for the government initiatives that almost borders on party political. It, yeah, it's kind of outrageous. <laughs> and also it's always because I Labor governments are always like if you do their campaigns and then you try to get on the government advertising list, they're like, oh, no, that would be a bad look. And you're like, oh, my God. So I never make any money from that because I'm never the one who gets to do those ads. But, yeah, it's always funny that just the year before election, all of a sudden there's a whole lot of government ads. I think the one thing different this year is um, the government advertising seems to have be having the opposite effect of helping the government, which is a new and interesting sort of development. I always say Scotty from marketing is not very good at marketing, which is probably why he was fired from his two marketing jobs. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because... I actually uh, wrote an article which said that it's a pity he's called Scotty from marketing because very little of what he does is strategic marketing. Most yeah. of it's sort of reactive comms. Exactly. It's, it's sort of it's tactical rather than strategic. But, um, but yeah, so he, he wasn't actually good at marketing. He gives all of us a terrible name, frankly. Isn't one of the other challenges from the point of view of political advertising, and especially around elections, the uh, the twenty four hour news cycle? Because uh, I guess no matter how much advertising you do, there's this now twenty four hour 
analysis of everything the politicians do during an election. Yeah, but this is this is the thing I think that's that's important. And no one on <laughs> Twitter's full of people who think they know what a campaign should be. And honestly, Twitter is the last place on earth you would take campaign advice. And anything that works on Twitter, I think by nature, would never work on a swinging voter. So yes, there is a 24-hour news cycle, and all the people on Twitter are very up with that and know exactly what's happening. Swinging voters are not. Swinging voters are absolutely disengaged. Now, that's a generalisation, not all swinging voters, but primarily, and I think there's this assumption that swinging voters are weighing up the options between both parties and thinking about who to vote for. Swinging voters actually don't give a fuck. And so they don't follow a 24-hour news cycle. A lot of them get their news from Facebook. Um, So understanding just how little they care about politics, and this isn't putting them down. They don't have a lot of good reasons to care about politics. In their minds, politics has not helped their lives particularly at all. And, you know, and fair enough for them to think that. So it's not a put down on them, but it's understanding that they're not part of that 24-hour news cycle. They are not following that 24-hour news cycle. And so I think this idea that somehow we should be reacting to all bits of it and, you know, pumping out information is a waste of resources a little bit because, you know, those people just care about what everyone cares about, which is themselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. And all you need to do is work out how to talk to them in a way that they think what you're selling or what the other people are selling does or doesn't answer their needs. It's, it's, that's basic brand advertising rules as well. Yeah, what's in it for me, answering that and making it meaningful and engaging for the audience? 100%. So I, when I sort of started, I would get um, politicians and some of them were, you know, well-known MPs and, and candidates and they'd want to start their political ads with, you know, hi, my name's such and such, you know, such and such MP of the Labor Party, blah, blah. And I said, absolutely not because that's the point we lose everyone. No one gives a fuck who you are. <laughs> start with them. Say the people of this area care about you know, an issue that's important to them. And 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 that's your way in, bringing your name halfway through because, honestly, that's just the least important bit of it at this point. So that was all a bit of a wake-up for them. They were all a bit like, oh. Yeah, it's not about me. <laughs> I know. And because of the nature of politics because and the nature of political staffers as well, and I think we've seen this with the whole what's happened in Canberra is, you know, just the nature of political staffs is such a weird employment thing where your whole job relies on that one person liking you that they just <laughs> they act like little they all drink the Kool-Aid when it comes to their boss and they tell their boss that they're amazing and they're doing the blah 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 and you know and that everyone just wants to hear from them and it's like mm, not the case at all so I go in there's a bit of a truth teller. And uh, so what's the reaction to that? Very good actually you, you be politicians ultimately want to win and because I have a good track record um, they will listen to me. Well, that's true. I mean, you've uh, been creative director on uh, the ALP elections, to, what is it, 2015, 17 and 20 in Queensland yep. and 2016 and 2020 Northern Territory and 2016 and 2020 in the ACT. That's a pretty good track record. It is a very good track record and there's quite a few by-elections in there as well, which is very nice. Um, yeah, so I have a, I think um, out of 20, I think I've won like 14 or 15 of them, which is a, a good record. I'm hoping it continues, but, you know, time will tell. Well, as they say, anyone that does better than 50-50 is in front, aren't they? 
<laughs> exactly. And again, it's sort of, you know, it's you only play in the margin that matters. The only people, if you think about it in an election campaign, and this is why so much of the polling is just you know, a complete waste of time because it's done nationally. The only polls that matter are the ones for swinging voters in marginal seats. They're the only people who can swing an election. And they're actually not a massive amount of people. And your material just needs to work on them. So when, again, and I always hark back to Twitter, oh, that ad wouldn't work on me. It's like, I don't care. It's not designed to work on you. Like it is literally designed to work on a swinging voter in a marginal seat. That is it. And that's how you win an election, by putting the blinkers on and ignoring the yelling people from the side saying what ads they want to, because you see people go, oh, the ad that would work on me would be one like this. And they always bring up um, Lincoln Project. <laughs> we need more Lincoln-style project ads. It's like they're literally the last thing we need because they're high-information ads and swinging voters are low-information voters. And the last thing you want to do in a campaign is pump a whole lot of resources into ads that would work on people who are already voting for you. So one of the criticisms globally is, or, or observations perhaps, I'm, I'm revealing my political bias, but one of the criticisms is that the conservative side of politics globally has become very good at wrapping up a whole lot of complex issues in catchphrases that appeal to these you know, undecided voters, whereas the left is inclined to always be you know, trying to do the nuance and, and not really learning how to simplify the choice. Yeah, and I think I look, I think that's true. And I think it's deeper though than that. I think it used to be that the most progressive people, say if you talk about Australia, the most progressive people were the unions and it was the left and it was the working class. And we sort of seem to have this thing in the last 20 years where you've almost got two parts of the Labor Party. So you've got the inner city progressives and then you've got the working class who are increasingly less progressive and they're quite different. But the way we talk to them, those working class people that we need to win, is with that sort of inner city progressive voice that I think is a bit judgy and a bit talking. It's like we will explain everything to you because we're the sort of, we're the moral guardians and, and we'll tell you what the right thing to do is and what's right for the world. And these are people in their very nice little inner city houses with their very nice inner city incomes and they're kind of preaching down to people in, you know, marginal seats in Queensland, people who are maybe working in mining, who are struggling to, you know, pay their mortgage and need that job to pay their mortgage and put food on the table. And we tell them, oh, your job's wrong. And, and then we wonder, then we wonder why we lose these people. So I think it is the progressive. It's not just that we want to explain everything and we don't want to drill things down to a three-word slogan, but it's also I think our tone of voice has been really wrong. Judgmental. And very judgmental without meaning to be. It's it's almost, um, what's that, oh, what is the word? It's It's that sort of we know a little bit better. We're helping you. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of, yeah, yeah but it's, it, but uh, you know, the undercurrent of that is, is absolutely talking down to people, I think, and we need to stop doing that. The other uh, big difference, because a lot of people look towards the UK and the US when they think about politics, and the big difference is in Australia we have compulsory voting yeah. so that literally every person has to turn up on the day or, you know, around the time and, and register a vote. Or get or pay their fifty dollar fine, which makes the dynamics quite different, doesn't it? It does, and and we always get people over here from America who are 
think, oh, no, this is what you need to be doing. And it's like, no, because, as you said, the get out to vote in America, particularly for um, Democrats, really, if you can get people out to vote, you're likely to win. So that becomes your primary message. And there are different triggers to do that, which, as you said, in Australia is just not a thing. We can kind of go much more straight for straight for the jugular because, yeah, we, we don't need them to get out and vote. Although it'll be interesting to see with COVID whether that changes things, whether there is more of a reluctance, and I guess it depends on how the Electoral Commission wants to set things up in terms of um, how people can vote. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the census is in August uh, this year and uh, they're saying that about 70 to 80% of that will be done online. I'm wondering if that will open up the possibility of online voting. I hope not, only because um, the checks and balances would concern me. I mean, I know that in theory, online voting, you know, or it almost it just seems like a very reasonable thing to do. It is also far easier um, to... Um, manipulate or to, you know, I the checks and balances of a normal vote, and I don't know if people understand what happens, but what happens when your vote gets counted at the counting station, there's the person counting it, right, and there's usually a person from both parties standing behind that person. And if there's a vote that looks like it could go one way, and, and you'd be surprised how many people vote in a weird way on there, but when they're not quite put the, you know, check in the right place but it's close enough, so there's usually a conversation between, and they're called scrutineers. Um, there's usually a conversation between them where they'll sort of argue it out as to whose pile that vote goes in. And that human oversight I think is really, really important. So I'm not yet a fan of online voting. Okay, so it still could be quite a few years away. But uh, just to go back, uh, the topic I've always been interested in is the idea of political advertising as being part of government business. It's interesting how election ads under the Australian Broadcasting Act have to have written and spoken by at the end of it or authorised by at the end of it as part of the Broadcasting Act. It is. The, the rules and regulations on that last sort of two seconds of an ad far exceed any other part of the ad. For example, there's actually no truth in advertising rules for federal election ads, but... <laughs> The bit on the end takes all the time they want. And then they and they change it occasionally. So for example, they made it so you can't say say CFMEU anymore. You have to say construction, forestry, mining, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden your two-second disclaimer becomes a five-second disclaimer. Um and and so it makes it really tricky for things like 30-second ads, because no, 15-second ads, because as you know, media buyers will always say, oh, we should do lots of 15-second ads. And I explain to my clients, you know, in ad, in political advertising, that takes us to about 11 and a half seconds. So <laughs> you might want to rethink that. There's slightly different rules online. Um, some platforms have, um, you can just have a, um, uh, you know, a written disclaimer on the end as well. But, yeah, they constantly change it and we have to constantly check up to make sure we don't um, we don't get in trouble. But it's interesting how that's leached across into government advertising. So, you know, campaigns for government business, you know, getting people to register, getting people to uh, get vaccinations, all have these uh, these same disclaimers at the end as if they're political. Yeah, um, I, some of it I think is, is unnecessary but deliberate. 
so that it's almost good branding. This is a message from the Australian government. Canberra is actually smart branding. Um, they um, Technically for unions, the ads that run in election campaigns are supposed to have them and ads that don't necessarily run in a campaign don't always have to have them. But we have got to the point now where we just stick them on everything because it's just safer. But, yeah, with the government, um, I can't remember what the exact government rules are, whether it had to be a spoken one, but I think, as I said, I think it might be a bit of a branding exercise as well. Interesting. Because uh, uh, just, you know, we mentioned earlier how governments are inclined to uh increase their investment in uh, advertising leading up to an election. But I'm just wondering if this, uh, the same thing should be applied because there are implications, of course, the, uh, the still the award for uh, voiceover talent and actors means that uh, political advertising is paid with a loading. Oh, my God, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I had that conversation with a state secretary the other day. They're like, how much? And I'm like, this much because it's a loading. It's like, and, like, that's a lot. And it's like, well, if you want to go and argue with the union about that, but I wouldn't. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, but also you can negotiate beforehand for a voiceover for an entire campaign where you can sort of, um, you know, do a package deal and stuff. But, yeah, it's very expensive. But that used to be the case even in um, in um, tampon advertising. Like girls in a tampon ad got a certain loading. If it's someone in an ad about, you know, incontinence, there is a particular type of loading as well. So uh, alcohol is uh, is a big one. Any alcohol advertising also comes with a loading. Yeah. So I guess it's um. I had I had one one voiceover turn up to do an ad, and it was to run an election campaign. And just as he was about to start, he just said, "Do, do you think it matters that um I voiced the Liberal Party campaign?" <laughs> him and I go yeah yeah it really matters and your agent probably should have let us know and no give me that script really quickly you have to leave now it was just like this is outright like I don't believe they the voiceover necessarily has to be fully you know on board but the fact that they thought it was okay to do two different party campaigns is like no mate not not doable well, I had one of uh, the union uh, representatives explain to me the political loading was because the talent, the voiceover actor, talent or actress, needed to be compensated for potentially uh, advertising or appearing to endorse a political party that they may not actually support. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was more that um, it... it could stop them getting other work. So if you were doing an ad for a political party and that meant you mightn't get government work if there was a different government in that state. But, I mean, so I'm not sure exactly what the reasons are, but I know it's significant. So it was, it, so the other day I was looking at a radio one and it was going to be 470. And then with the political loading double feet, you know, it goes to 940. All of a sudden you, you put in your, your costs for a sound booth and an engineer and that. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 elections campaigns are done on the smell of an oil rag. Like people are like, oh, why don't you do an ad that does this and that and this and that? It's like we can't afford it. So is that driven by obviously trying to make their uh, budgets go as far as possible, or is it also a factor of the the yeah, as you said before, it's fast and furious, and there wouldn't be a lot of time to plan things like, you know, detailed or elaborate shoots? Um, all of the above. Often um, campaigns are increasingly capped, their spend. So what you spend on 
one ad means you don't have to spend on another. And it's, it's yeah, you, you've always got to make sure you've got some money, you know, in the middle of a campaign to make something if something comes up. And increasingly with social media, um, you tr- a lot of content is important as long as it's on strategy. Um, and, and so, yeah, it is a bit fast and furious. It is nice if you can occasionally do, you know, a big neg that's going to look great and that to begin a campaign with. But, yeah, you just you don't want to be spending a lot of money on something if you need that for something else down the track. And it is a fine line between a quality production and something that's only going to last for, you know, a couple of days. Having said that, we've, you know, I've done ads, neg ads, where we've started them on day one of a campaign and run them for the six weeks through. Um, I think the other thing that's changed is just the tempo of a campaign. So it used to be... You came out strong, say if it was a say a five-week campaign, standard campaign, you come out strong in the first week. It used to be traditionally you'd go positive for the first four days and then you'd, you know, you'd accuse your opponent of going negative. Oh, look how negative they are before you go negative. Now we're just sort of going negative pretty much both both of everyone just goes negative from the start. Um, and But then what would happen is you'd go a week and a half and then you'd pull your media spend back for two weeks because you just couldn't afford to advertise for that whole time. You pull it back and then you come in hard on the last week. But with pre-poll, that's changed voting patterns completely. And, and you know, pre-poll has increased 40%, 50%, and I'd say after COVID even more. So it means you have to be able to afford, a, you know, a flat campaign that runs, you know, through. So, again, it is more expensive and also just, just the internal costs of, you know, if you do up a piece of material, just having to make it work for, you know, different ratios for different platforms and things like that is also costlier. Like, you know, four or five negs in a campaign and two or three pauses used to be enough and now that wouldn't even be close to enough. So mm. campaigns are more expensive to run. Um, so, yeah. Because there's more elements to them. Uh, it's interesting, though, one of the side effects of uh, of the low cost of uh, political campaigns, election campaigns especially, is uh, when you're successful, I've often had conversations with politicians saying, why can we get elected for very little money? And yet as soon as we're uh, in office, we suddenly have to pay agencies 10 to 20 times more to do the same sort of advertising. What would you say? Well, this is my sort of thing is, is I'm never one of those agencies that are paying 10 to 20. They're like, oh, no, but, you know, we're using you for the campaign. It's like, yeah, but smell of an oil rag. Um, very few campaign, very few of the big agencies do election campaigns um, for usually quite good reasons. One is, honestly, if you worked out the hours you work and the resources and that, you think, man, this is not financial. <laughs> this is not a financially brilliant idea. Like every, every every year my board sits down and they go, Dee, look at what we make from election campaigns compared to all our other clients. Is this really something that you want to be doing? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, so that's why a lot of the big agencies don't do it because they know that you don't actually make, you know, a great deal of money from it. It really is something you do because you love it. So those big agencies that they're going to for their government ads actually put in, you know, reasonable profit margins, which is why they cost a lot more. Absolutely. And and luckily, as you say, you own your own business. So uh, you can say to the board, you know, it's my way or the highway, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I try to phrase it differently, but they know, you know, that, that it's, it's why we started the business. Like it, it literally, 
literally why we started the business was to pitch for the Queensland 2015 campaign and because I felt like there was space here. So, yeah, and it's, you know, it's the bit that keeps, I find it exciting still. I mean, it's exhausting. I, I, after every single election campaign, I say, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no more, can't do it again. And then about a week or two later when I crawl back on, out from under my doona, I just start to go, Ooh, <laughs> when's the next one? Sounds like uh, young adults are, uh, after hangovers or, uh, you know, after childbirth. Everyone goes never again and then backs up and does it again. Well, it's not just young adults after hangovers. Old adults do that too. Childbirth's easy because you just have all the drugs. See, <laughs> <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time and uh and sharing your experiences. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Campaign Edge, uh, you ha- you've been doing election, but you also do all sorts of uh, communication campaigns to uh, influence uh, the public uh, towards uh, better ideas, new ideas and, uh, and commercial objectives. Yeah, and I actually think our campaign um, experience makes us better at brand stuff. We don't work with a whole lot of brands, only the ones that we are comfortable with, and that's a decision, but we definitely do brand clients. And because we get really, really good at um, micro-targeting people, you know, online, we, we know how to get them demographically, geographically, and any other ethically you could possibly imagine, um, the sort of our, our data knowledge from campaigning, I think, means that we get we get really, really good um, results for our brand clients. And I keep brand clients as well because what I learn from them is actually informs my campaign work. I don't get stuck too far inside the bubble. And the danger with politics is you can get inside the bubble and and the people we need to talk to are outside the bubble. So I actually try to keep a balance on that because I think it makes me better at both jobs. Absolutely. Well, look, thanks very much. I just have one final question, and that is uh, of all of the politicians that uh, you've either known or know of, which one do you admire the most? (laughs) 